Warning. Although today's escape pod is evocative of children's literature, it contains moral themes and plot points that are likely to be exceptionally difficult for very young children. I highly recommend parents listen to this first. Escape pod 146 February 21st, 2008 Today's story, Edward Bear and the Very Long Walk, by Ken Scholes. Hello, and welcome to Escape Pod. I'm Steve Ely. We have a powerful story for you this week by Ken Scholes, featuring a very unlikely protagonist and another variation on the hero's journey. I don't think I need to talk much about what the hero's journey means. Joseph Campbell's book's been around for almost 60 years, and by now most people who've ever read mythology know about this pattern of receiving the quest and the long road with many trials and coming back to the ordinary world. Reading this week's story got me wondering, why is this concept so powerful? Why is it that stories of long, miserable travel with dangers and ordeals and pain appeal so strongly to almost everyone in every culture throughout history? I have a spot theory about this, and that's that most of us never leave our homes. Bear with me here. Obviously, I don't mean that no one travels. People do all the time, but for most of us, the more we travel, the more mundane it becomes, and we carry all the accumulated stuff from home with us in our heads. We're not experiencing the fantastic or perceiving different worlds and challenges around us. We're just changing location. And whether we're at home or somewhere else, how many of us approach our days, or any part of any day, with goals or vision or purpose? We may live repetitive lives or chaotic lives, but very few of us live intentional lives. We mostly just do whatever gets us to the next day. So, when we encounter stories about people leaving their homes and facing dramatic risks in pursuit of goals and vision, I don't think it's just excitement that compels us so much. I think some of it's jealousy. These are things most of us could do, on some scale and in some context, to really feel alive. But we don't. Hearing that someone's doing them and having that someone portrayed as being better than us might make us feel a little better about staying at home. But should it? It's what I'm starting to think about. So, this week's story is Edward Bear and the Very Long Walk by Ken Scholes. Mr. Scholes lives in Oregon and has been a sailor, soldier, clergyman, and label gun repairman. That sounds like a journey in itself. He's had over 20 publications in great markets like the Fordian Bureau, Realms of Fantasy, and Weird Tales, and was a 2005 winner in the Writers of the Future contest. This story first appeared in Tailbones in spring 2001 and received an honorable mention in the year's best science fiction. So, make up a jaunty song about yourself, but don't sing it while you're listening. It's story time. Edward Bear and the Very Long Walk by Ken Scholes He was a bear, and his name was Edward, and he lay twitching in the corner of a room that smelled of death. He didn't exactly know what death smelled like, but he knew that's what he smelled, because something very bad had happened here. He just couldn't remember what. A small boy in short pants flickered over him, smiling. Hello, Bear. It's about time you woke up. Edward sniffed and stirred. Hello. Are you... No, I'm not. I am the Fun Play Holographic Nursery Brain. Oh, Edward stood. It's just that you look like... I mean, I thought you might be... Well, you know... 
No, I'm not. Edward reached out a paw to touch the boy's arm. It passed through. Oh, I see. Do you know what's happened to the children? Edward swallowed. Suddenly, he wanted to cry. Yes, they're... sleeping? He hoped and hoped and hoped and hoped, grimacing as he did. He looked around. Makeshift beds lined the room. Small hands gripped blankets. Small eyes stared at the ceiling. No, the boy frowned. They've died. Because of something very bad? Yes, and I need you to be a very brave bear. Can you do that? Edward nodded once, twice, three times, and blinked. Good. I need you to leave the nursery and find someone. Tell them about the children. Edward heard a squeaking sound and knew he made it. He felt a tremendous fear growing in him. Why can't you go? I can't leave the nursery. I've never left the nursery alone. The boy hissed and his image warbled, then came back into focus. Yes, you can. You must. I can't leave. I'm not real. You must go, Bear. But first you have to open the door. Edward shuffled out of the corner. The room was stifling, heavy with rottenness and a buzzing dance of flies. He tried to remember the last time he'd played with the children, but couldn't. He squinted, trying to conjure up any memories of the something very bad. He faintly remembered his birthday, waking up surrounded by laughter in the midst of the nursery, and distorted tales from the children about traveling very far to find a new home. They had such bright and shining faces, and they were all so smart. Whenever he couldn't understand what they told him, they called him Silly Old Bear and Bear of Little Brain. He also carried vague recollections of the grown-ups, pausing in the nursery door or sitting with their children. They were even smarter than the children, and they never talked to the toys. He was a bear, and his name was Edward, and he was a toy. He remembered being told this on his birthday when he woke up after a very long sleep. It was as if he'd gone to sleep in his comfortable house in the wood, under the name of Sanders, and woke up here. He had hoped for cakes and cream and possibly honey and candles to blow out when he first opened his eyes. Instead, he led the children in a song and then a dance. A few weeks later, there was no one left to play with. Edward simply went to sleep. Over here, bear, the boy said. The boy stood by the door, pointing to a flat button in the wall. Push this! With a static pop, the boy disappeared. Edward's fur paws whispered over the vinyl floor. He reached the door and stretched as tall as he could. The button was an arm's length out of reach. Bother! He looked over each shoulder, spotting an oblong plastic box. He waddled to it, picked it up easily, and lay it against the door. This should work quite nicely, he said to no one in particular. He climbed and stretched and reached. Bother! Edward hopped down and began pacing the narrow aisle between beds, trying hard not to notice the white, stretched skin and puffy, staring eyes. Pillows, he thought. Moving from bed to bed, holding his breath and squeezing his eyes shut at each, he carefully wriggled four pillows free. He placed them against the door and scrambled up, striking the flat button just as he tumbled to the floor. Nothing happened. 
Drat and bother. Chris, I mean, hollow, what's it, nursurious brain? No answer. Are you there? Hello? Silence. Edward sat, head in his paws, and thought, and thought, and thought. Then he sighed. His stomach growled, even though he knew he didn't need to eat exactly. He could go long periods of time without food. Still, mouths were for eating, and bellies were for filling, and a bit of something would be nice. But not in this room. So how to leave? That was his question of the moment. And he had to find someone and tell them about the children. The hairs in his ears tickled to a faint sound above. He sniffed. Air, he said, leaping to his feet. Air? But from where? A grill set high in the wall grinned down at him when he looked up. Edward paced the floor, thought of a song that went nicely with his difficult situation, hummed it through a few times, and then thought of a plan. The grill was too high to reach. There was no one to ask for help. He would try the button again. With a whisper and a groan and a thud as he fell down, the door hushed open just a bit. Squeezing through, his gurgling stomach protesting the pressure, he padded into the hall to find someone. Edward heard the crying long before he saw the girl. She sat in a large room wrapped in fading stars, holding her head in her hands. Hello? The girl looked up and sniffed. She stared at him. I mean, um, I hope I'm not interrupting. Edward entered the room. I really wouldn't want to bother you, but I seem to be very lost, and you seem to be very sad. She stood and flickered as she moved. I'm looking for a grown-up. Edward used his most confidential and important tone. The girl started crying again. They're all gone, she said through her tears. Oh, Edward shifted uncomfortably from left to right. I killed them all, the girl whispered. Her eyes widened. All of them. Edward backed up a step. Oh, well, in that case, perhaps it would be best if I were... The girl suddenly began to stretch upward, her legs, arms, and torso extending themselves like taffy, her hair spilling down around her shoulders like milk. Her eyes grew far away pale, and her skin pulled, then sagged. It was an accident, the old woman said. A terrible accident. And she pointed at a console as the stars disappeared. She flickered again. Edward followed the line of her finger to a dangling cord. The children called them their jack-in-the-necks, a small hole that helped them know things when they plugged wires into it. Edward himself had a jack-in-the-belly so he could play with other toys. Plug in, she said. Edward plugged in and suddenly found his head full to the point of bursting, as if hands tugged at his ears and snout, pushing and pulling at once. Oh, he said, and sat heavily to the floor. Her name, Edward knew, was the Nancy Bell. She was a starship, the first of five to hastily leave a dying home. Earth. A place he couldn't remember well, but now understood was once green and blue and full of life. The old woman who had been a little girl was a manifestation of the ship's brain, and she was dying, trickling away with the moments. After nearly a century of travel, she'd reached her goal and awakened her cargo, three hundred men, women, and children. 
But there was a flaw, a minute tear in the program that gradually became a gaping hole. Critical EM shields had malfunctioned, the comma ray burned off in an unforeseen asteroid belt, air tanks ruptured. It was all she could do to launch her commsat. The Nancy Bell crash-landed on an otherwise quiet Tuesday, using the southern hemisphere's tepid ocean to break her fall. She dragged herself onto the wooded beach to die, a massive diseased whale of charred metal. The virus awaited and systematically executed the survivors. We worked so hard. Edward looked up from the floor at the sound of her voice. Nancy Bell still stood in the center of the room, staring at nothing. We did? Yes, for a vaccine. Oh, another burst of data, white light collapsing his field of vision. He saw blood cells and antibodies in a kaleidoscope twisting and turning on themselves. We found it. He heard her somewhere outside of himself. But it was too late. Yes, he realized. The grown-ups had programmed the necessary information into the ship, dying before the Nancy Bell had gotten results. The formula, the cure, lay in so many sparks of electricity in a dying ship's mind. Life for four other vessels, en route and unsuspecting. You must help me save them. Me? Edward's voice was more a squeak than anything else, and having been somewhat unsure of it, he repeated himself. Me? You're all that's left. She changed again, shrinking into a boy in short pants that immediately filled his heart with hope. You are going to go on a very long walk to climb a very tall mountain. I am? Yes. I need you to be a very brave bear. Can you do that? Edward thought for a moment. E yes Another blast and the room spun. He closed his eyes. He saw the communications satellite turning in slow orbit, dish tilted toward a green-blue haze, thirsty like a sponge for water. He saw the muted ship, unable to answer the repeated blip of questions. And he saw the portable transmitter lying in the great ship's belly and the red hover wagon near the airlock. Then geography swept at him, over him, like a rushing beast. He knew his minuscule toy brain, designed for telling stories, singing, and playing with the children, couldn't contain the flood of information. He knew he'd begin forgetting. Everything, as soon as he unplugged. He also knew the ship didn't have the strength to tell him again. But he would remember the most important parts. The wagon. The pack. The walk, the mountain, and the big green button. Edward Bear unplugged and stood up. The boy smiled at him, then flickered and began to fade. Silly old bear, he said. I know you can do it. Edward Bear left the ship on a quiet Friday, his muzzle still wet with something quite like but not condensed milk, and paws still sticky with something quite like but again not, honey. His send-off party, launching his great expedition, had been a smashing success. There had been plenty to eat for everyone, which was especially important, him being the only someone in attendance. He stepped through the yawning hatchway, giving the wagon a tug. It buzzed noisily behind him, and he looked back. It bobbed up against the lip of the door. 
With the slightest lift, it cleared and floated easily. Edward couldn't remember exactly what the something strapped to the wagon did. Already most of what the Nancy Bell told him had leaked away. But he knew it was important, and that he had to take it up the mountain. And press the green button. He mustn't forget that. Bear trudged across the sand, head turning side to side, nose working the wind. The air was heavy, a thick salt smell. A breeze cut across the massive ship, whipping up the sand and bending the brush that grew behind a line of driftwood. A golden sun in a blue sky. Behind him, he could hear waves rushing the beach with tiny, deep-down-inside roars, followed by satisfactory sighs. When he reached the driftwood, he climbed onto a log and watched the ocean for a while. He'd heard the boy in short pants talk about the ocean a long time ago. It was bigger than anything. Nancy Bell lay half-submerged. Scattered around her lay the remnants of camp. Canopies, stacked boxes, a line of clothes dry now for weeks that no one would wear. Toys nearly buried by the shifting sand. Toys that no one would play with ever again. Edward sniffed back a tear. He looked the other way now, back to the forest. Trees stretched thin and tall, reaching for the sky, blossoming like green balloons. Beyond them, purple hills rolled up and over like a rumpled quilt, and, looming behind the hills, a mound of stone, white and enticing as vanilla ice cream. His mountain. He climbed down from the log and followed the line of wood until he came to a trail that disappeared into the forest. Dragging his red wagon, he waved goodbye to the ship. The woodland swallowed him, and at first it reminded him of home. Only none of his friends seemed to be about. He'd always loved the wood, and this one was not so different. Certainly the ferns were larger, and the berries had an unfamiliar gray hue. Some of the trees stood straight and thin and very, very tall, with branches that swept out and down, covered with small dark needles. But the branches began too far up for convenient honey-gathering climbs. Once, about two hours into his walk, Edward heard a buzzing louder than his wagon, and his heart jumped. He spun round and round, finally seeing the bearer of glad tidings. The biggest bee he had ever seen zipped past his nose. Bees mean honey, he said out loud. His stomach rumbled its agreement. At four hours, he came across a small hole. He poked his head inside, shouted, Hello! and then thought better of it and moved on. Once, forever ago it seemed, he'd found himself stuck in a hole very much like it. At six hours into his very long walk, Edward Bear decided that this forest wasn't anything at all like home. The sun disappeared somewhere behind him, leaving the wood painted in charcoal shadow. At six and one-half hours into his very long walk, the noises started up, and the light gave out altogether, and Edward decided that it was actually the wrong sort of forest for small animals entirely on their own. He parked his wagon and hid in the hollow between two large stones. Edward tried to sleep, but didn't for a long while. Unfamiliar sounds and smells troubled him. At last, he slept fitfully. In the morning, he met the parrotishes. They were standing around his wagon, poking it with long sticks. Thin and tall, like the trees, they hooted as he crawled out from his makeshift bed. 
There were five of them, all wearing bits of skin around their waists. Their brown, bark-like skin blended with the forest, and their wide black eyes shone like pools of oil. The tallest wore a vine around his forehead, hung with feathers, leaves, and twigs. Hello, Bear said in a quiet sort of voice. He felt a little afraid. They jumped, looked at him, and backed away slowly. He jumped too, and wondered if he could edge himself back into his bed and start over again, after having a bit more sleep and a bit less company. They studied him carefully, and, suddenly self-conscious, Edward patted himself down, raising a small cloud of dust. I'm a bit of a mess. I'm on an expedition, you know. The four shorter paratishes looked at what seemed to be their leader. It stepped forward. Edward saw no time like the present to make introductions. Good morning. I'm Edward Bear. Pleased to meet you. He moved closer and stuck out his paw. The leader sprung back, hooting and whistling. The followers hooted and whistled too. Then, clearing its voice, the leader shuffled cautiously closer to Edward and stuck out its own three-fingered hand. Good morning, it said. I'm Edward Bear. Pleased to meet you. Edward blinked, dropped his paw. You are? A pause. You are? I am. Who are you? I am. Who are you? I'm Edward Bear. Edward shifted uncomfortably. I'm Edward Bear. The leader imitated his shift. Then the others behind him did the same. I'm Edward Bear, four voices said. Edward nodded enthusiastically. Just like parrots, he realized. And so he called them parrotishes. They were still nodding enthusiastically when he grabbed up the handle of his floating wagon and continued down the trail. The paratishes shadowed him through the forest for three days, always disappearing at dusk, always reappearing at dawn. They moved apart and silent, occasionally whistling or hooting or proclaiming themselves to be Edward Bear. On the third day, he made up a song for bears on very long walks. He called it Edward Bear and the Very Long Walk, and found himself suddenly part of a choir. Around the forest, thin and reedy voices parroted back his words. He tried to conduct them, but gave up in the end. They wouldn't sing their bits properly, and no harmony could be found. He began to whistle instead. On the fourth day, he found a beehive that no one seemed to care much for. He declared a holiday and helped himself. If honey could be sweeter and stickier, this honey was. The paratishes watched from a distance, imitating his oh mys along with the wet smacking noises. As he walked, the terrain changed. The trail gave out, but so did the choked foliage. The trees began to thin, and long purple blades of grass took over. At the forest's end, a bright blanket of rolling prairie met his eyes. Looming over him, the brilliant mountain shone against an azure sky. Leaving the forest meant leaving its shade. For half a day, Edward moved across the prairie, feeling the heat through his fur. The wagon whispered along behind him, occasionally sputtering over a rock or hissing reluctance as he tugged uphill, cresting rolls and ridges. He paused several times to look for his troop of emaciated echoes, but they were nowhere to be seen as if owned by the shadows of the wood. Overhead, large birds zipped between spherical clouds, riding a wind he couldn't feel. As the sun set, the air chilled, 
and the sky became a painting gently fading into gray. He spent his first night in the open, curled into a tight ball on a bed of grass. The next morning, he took a few steps toward the mountain before he realized his wagon was gone. At first, he looked about frantically, his head moving quickly, his nose sniffing the air as if he might catch the scent. Nothing. For a few hours, he sat down and cried. He had failed. His expedition had ended. The sky choked with clouds that suddenly cut loose and water sliced the air around him, soaking him completely and turning the prairie into purple sponge. Lifting his snout to the darkened sky, Edward howled. A howl answered him, and he looked up into the black eyes of a single parrotish. I'm Edward Bear, the parrotish said, and motioned for him to follow. Belligerently, Edward trudged behind the parrotish. The rain let up as they entered the forest at a point someplace other than where they had left it the day before. Once, the parrotish broke out into Edward Bear and the Very Long Walk, but Edward didn't feel like singing. An anger settled over him, mixed with sadness. His thoughts kept wandering back to the children's hollow eyes, fixed on nothing ever again, shining for no one. He couldn't remember how many other children were coming, or when, or even how, but he knew their eyes would be empty too, now that he'd lost his wagon. A hoot and whistle stopped his little brain. He looked up to see that his guide had joined the four others, the leader among them. It held a length of wood in its slender fingers, and it pointed to a round, dark mouth in the side of a low hill. His guide prodded him, and Edward turned. The parrotish pantomimed dragging something, and then pointed to the hole. I'm Edward Bear, it said. The others chimed in eager but low voices. Edward moved toward the hole. Some dreadful stench that smelled very much like death leaked out of it. He felt afraid, and his hackles rose. Oh, in there? Oh, in there? They echoed. Uh, well, he shifted. Oh, bother. They echoed him, then backed away and motioned at the hole. He looked back and forth, between them and the dark opening. Then... He made what he believed was a very brave decision. Well then, he said in as cheerful a voice as he could, let's just go and have a look. He marched to the hole and paused as the leader touched his shoulder. When he turned, the leader thrust the stick into his paws. It was a spear, he realized. The dirt walls gave off a damp smell that mingled with the odor from deeper within. As his eyes adjusted to the dark, Edward saw that the tunnel stretched gradually down. His ears picked up various sounds, water dripping, gentle snoring, soft whimpering, and an electric buzz that he at first mistook for bees. Clutching his spear as best he could, sharpened point thrust before him, he made his way downward until the tunnel widened into a larger den. He felt something like wet wood shifting beneath his feet and as he moved them, the smell grew worse. In the center of the room, near two mounds of breathing hair, his wagon hummed while lights flickered off and on along the pack it supported. In the far corner, thin, small figures cowered. Edward tiptoed toward the wagon, listening carefully to each snore. He shifted the spear to one paw and stretched the other toward the wagon's handle. He could leave quietly, he knew, without waking them. 
and he should so he could climb the mountain. To save the children, he told himself. The softest hoot and whistle came to him from the shivering forms across the den. He looked at the wagon, then to the mounds of hair, then to the corner. He picked his way past them and went to the three small parrotishes huddled together. They were children. Their hands were tied, and as he turned the first around to bite at the tough vines, one of the mounds snorted and barked. Edward put down his spear and went to work, tooth and claw, finally severing the bonds. Quietly, he led them out of the cave. Outside, the five grown-up parrotishes surrounded the children, clutching them as well as Edward in tight embraces while they whistled their pleasure. When they turned to leave the clearing, beckoning him to follow, Edward hesitated. Uh, excuse me, please. They stopped. Uh, excuse me, please, the leader said. Let me just fetch my wagon. He turned back to the cave. He plunged back into the darkness, spear held loosely. Softly padding to the wagon, he lifted its handle and tugged. A growl rose up behind him, and he spun around, dropping the handle with a clang. Ah, uh, terribly sorry to have awakened you. I think I'll just slip out now. Please, go back to sleep. The hare mound became a creature nearly twice his size, short back legs supporting a massive torso and long arms. A horn slowly sprouted from the head, and saliva splattered the floor from a wide, tooth-lined mouth. The other stirred now as well, and Edward tried another approach. This, he said with a squeak, is just a dream you're having. It will be over soon enough, so... The first beast sprang, tumbling Edward to the ground. He rolled himself into a ball as best he could. Edward knew he should run, but his paws closed over the spear. He couldn't leave without the wagon. He managed what he thought was a fierce growl and leaped to his feet. The creature barked loudly, scooping up a large, heavy-looking stick. Swinging the club, the monster charged, and Edward thrust the spear forward with all his strength, feeling it hesitate against skin before breaking through the beast's shoulder. It shrieked in pain, dropped the club, and lashed out with a long arm. Hidden talons tore into the side of Edward's face, dropping him to the floor. He kept his tentative hold on the spear and dragged it down with him, opening a larger gash in the beast. Out of the corner of his eye, Edward saw its companion watching the fight for an opportunity to jump in. The wounded creature pounced, fastening its mouth on the top of Edward's head while its talons raked his torso and belly. The spear broke beneath the weight with a loud snap. Edward heard a low murmur that crescendoed to a loud shriek. He knew, in a distant way, it was himself. His paws scrambled over the stinking, matted hair as he tried to roll over and away. Fire flashed its way deep into each wound, and bits of fur and toy gel stung his eyes. His paw closed over the sharpened end of his broken spear, and, in a panic, he gripped it and thrust it upward into the soft throat of his adversary. It howled, talons working fiercely, mouth opening and closing on Edward's head. Then it went limp. Edward struggled free, rose shakily to his feet, and roared. The other beast slammed into him before he could turn to face it. He went down hard. He vaguely heard angry hoots and whistles racing down the tunnel before cotton filled his ears. He vaguely saw five forms burst into the den, rocks clutched tight and small fists. 
when the light stopped flashing in his head, a muddled darkness descended. He awoke to sunlight and pleasant smells and eight faces staring down at him. He tried to sit up, but gentle hands pushed him down. I'm a bit of a mess, the parrotish leader said, mouth working carefully around the words. I'm on an expedition, you know. It sounded hollow and far away. Edward noticed that one of his ears, stained yellow with crusty toy gel, now decorated the leader's headband. He also noticed the lacerations on its arms and chest. The others crowded around him, too, and he could see they fared no better. Two of them held horns that dripped blood. Another held a steaming handful of something that looked like mud. It began dabbing the mud on Edward's head. Turning his head slowly, he took in the surroundings. He lay in the clearing outside the cave. Nearby, the red wagon hummed and bobbed on air. An owl swooped down and perched at his feet. Oh, it's you! Edward tried to smile but couldn't find the strength. You'd better hurry, the owl said. You haven't much time. Edward nodded. Oh, it's you, the parrotish leader said. Edward slept. The pain licked him and chewed him in his dreams, ever in the background. Large metal whales swam across the night while children slept safe inside. A pig and a bear went round and round a bush. A spinning top moved in slow motion around a blue-green marble. A bear and a rabbit sat down for cakes and milk. Eyes stared empty at the ceiling. Hands clutched blankets. Tell them about the children. The boy became an old woman who became an empty balloon discarded in the sand. He awakened to movement. Somehow they'd tied him to a bed of ferns on top of the pack, and he rode the wagon as they took turns pulling. Hello? They stopped and looked down at him. His head pounded and his arm felt like jelly as he raised his paw. The mountain could be seen looming above the tree line, squatting in its purple nest. There! I need to go there! The parrotishes paused, huddled, and a lively debate ensued. Edward tried to make up dialogue to go with their gibberish, but gave up. It hurt too much to think. After a few minutes, they turned and broke from the cover of the forest. Edward lay back and closed his eyes. Time rushed like a brook over pebbles, daylight fading into dusk, dusk giving way to dark, and dark becoming dawn. The parrotishes only stopped to force water or honey into his mouth. He spat most of it onto his chest, unable to hold it down. At one point, one of the children gave him a doll made from the purple prairie grass. It looked something like a bear, and he clutched it with his good arm as best he could. Gradually, it grew cold, but even when Edward saw his breath, he still felt like he was on fire. A cold bit of mud to roll in would be quite nice, he thought. As they climbed, he saw a pig throwing snowballs at a baby kangaroo. They both paused to wave at him. He waved back. Later, a tiger bounced over and kept pace with him long enough to ask how he felt. The tiger bounced away before he could say, Terrible! Thanks! At some point, two of the parrotishes came around to his feet and pushed the wagon while two pulled. The three children, and one of the others, Edward realized, weren't with them any longer. In the fog of his fever, they had left the expedition, and he hadn't noticed.
Tirelessly, they pushed on. With one last shove and yank, the wagon skipped across the slightly rounded summit and came to a halt. Edward began tugging at the vines that held him in place, and the parrotish leader helped untie him, but when Edward tried to stand, he wobbled. They crowded in to steady him, and he sat heavily in the loose-packed snow. "'Bother!' he said. His right arm didn't work, and neither did his left leg, and the missing ear had bobbed in front of him every time the parrotish leader leaned over to check on him during the journey. From where he sat, he waved to the pack and then pointed at the highest point of the summit. They unstrapped it and carried it over, propping it up in the snow. When he tried to stand again, they caught him up beneath his arms and carried him to it. His left paw lingered over the green button. He felt he should say something quite clever. He closed his eyes and sighed. For the children! The chorus rang out around him. For the children! Then he pushed the button and sagged back against his friends. He was a bear, and his name was Edward, and he lay against a snow-clad rock watching the ocean swallow the sun far away. A pink flash of fading light on metal caught his eye below where the gray water met the white beach. He tried to make up a song about the Nancy Bell, but couldn't. His friends, the parrotishes, stood aloof and talked in low tones. They had tried a half-dozen times to load him into the empty wagon. He'd waved them off and finally had snapped at one of them, growling as he did. He finally felt cool, but weariness soaked him through like bread in condensed milk. "'Hello, Bear!' The boy sat down beside him. "'Oh, are you here now?' "'No, neither are they.' The boy waved to a line of animals that stood a respectable distance. Tears ran down the pig's face. "'Well, then, I'm afraid I don't quite—I mean, if you're not here now, then exactly who is talking to me right now?' "'No one. You're talking to yourself.' Edward thought about this. "'I see,' he said, but didn't really see at all. He tried to twist his head back to the pack. With his good ear, he could hear it twittering and bleeping into the sky. "'Did I finish the expedition?' The boy smiled. "'You did. You're a very brave bear.' He sighed, the words making him quite comfortably warm. "'Well,' he said, in a satisfied sort of voice, I suppose I am somewhat of a somebody now. He coughed violently. Yes, you are. You're a hero, Bear. The boy packed a snowball and sent it flying out over the rim of the mountain. Someday everyone who is anyone will know all about Edward Bear and how he saved the children. Someday there'll be statues of you and stories and... And poems and songs? He laughed. And poems and songs. Edward smiled. I especially like songs about honey. There was an uncomfortable silence before the boy spoke again. Do you understand what's happening to you? Edward couldn't help it. The sob escaped him before he could grab it and hold it in. I... I'm broken. Yes. That's why all of you are here now, but not here. Yes. We're a part of your subbrain for comfort and for calm in times of great distress. He waited, watching as the last sliver of sun fell into the sea. He felt a tear slip out. 
Am I dying? The boy nodded twice, slowly. And there's nothing to do for it. I'm sorry, Bear. Edward heard the sound of crunching snow and turned his head. The parrotish leader squatted next to him. It untied the decorated headband and then retied it around Edward's head. I'm Edward Bear. The leader then handed him the purple doll. Edward took it and nodded. The leader turned and rejoined the group. Tugging the wagon, they trudged away, disappearing downward. So this is the end of me. He felt something heavy squeezing inside him, and he choked back another sob. The boy nodded. It is. For this you, anyway. But I was brave. Yes. Very. And a hero. A hero, yes. He smiled and closed his eyes. I'm very tired. Then go to sleep. I will, but... He peeked at the boy. But what? Will you stay with me and hold my hand and tell me about someday again, only very slowly until I fall asleep? The boy looked at him, and Edward saw that his eyes sparkled with love and tears. Silly old bear, of course I will. As the boy talked quietly about statues and stories and poems, the familiar sound of a song drifted up to Edward Bear from somewhere down below. And that was our story. The dramatic power of sacrifice is something I deliberately didn't talk about in the intro for fear of spoilers. Maybe I will later on. Here's a reminder to folks. If you've registered for this year's Worldcon, the deadline to make nominations for the Hugo or Campbell Awards is March 1st. I'm not campaigning for anyone or any story in particular for the Hugos, but I am nominating our friend Mer Lafferty for the Campbell. If you've liked what you've heard of her work on Escape Pod, you might like to write her in as well. Feedback on Escape Pod 143, the Teen Popularity Contest and Omens of Death story, Flaming Marshmallow and Other Deaths by Camille Alexa. This was overall a very popular piece. I think Goatkeeper captured the spirit of it by saying, Oh my god, that story was like so effing awesome I could die! 600 South made me very happy. He said, I had my doubts about the whole machine of death concept and wondered if it would produce any good stories, but after hearing that, I'll definitely be checking it out. Many people said they were initially put off by Danny Cutler's narration style until they realized that the character was supposed to be 16 and annoying. Then they felt it hit it spot on and enjoyed it a lot. One of the more critical notes spurred a discussion in the blog comments. Jenny asked, doesn't anyone in SF know how to end a story anymore? A few other people thought the story did end at exactly the right point, but it's certainly open to interpretation. Jay Height also didn't like it. He said, as Mr. Ely said at the beginning, if you don't want to remember your high school years, you might want to skip this one. Wow, I wish I had skipped it. My response is, hey, Mr. Ely is my dad's name. Escape Pod is a production of Escape Artists Incorporated and is distributed on a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. You can share us all you like on your journey, but don't sell or change us. All other rights are reserved by our authors. If you like this week's story, I hope you'll tell a friend or blog about us. And if you can, consider donating via the PayPal link at our site so that we can continue to buy great works from our authors. 
We're working right now on some incentives to make donating to us more personally rewarding, and I'll talk about that very soon. This is a good time to get ahead in line on those incentives. Also check out our horror podcast, Pseudopod, at pseudopod.org, and you can buy collectible CDs and DVDs of our stories at poddisc.com. Our music is by permission of Daikaiju. You can hear more from them at daikaiju.org. That was our show for this week. Our closing quotation comes from actress Lily Tomlin, who said, I always wanted to be somebody, but I see now I should have been more specific. We'll see you next week. Until then, whoever you are, have fun. <laughs> <laughs>